So we're in the book of Acts. That was smooth, wasn't it? <coughs> um, and this week uh, was interesting. The last couple of weeks have been a little more devotional in nature. Our sermons, um, kind of one of those really take home something with you points. This week we're going to nerd out for a bit. So reach in and grab your inner nerd and bring them out because um, this one's going to have some information in it, which I'm super excited. I'm going to use a laser pointer. Um, so... I'm so happy. Um, So we're in the book of Acts. We've been talking about the uh, church as it's gotten started. Uh, It kind of has this explosive beginning, uh, rounds up a whole bunch of people. And this starts to bother the powers that be, the the temple. Those who were kind of gaining their power from the current religious structure were threatened by this new move. And uh, we learned in the very beginning when they kind of felt like they could not proceed without having 12 disciples, um, because 12 is just kind of a magic number to Jews. Uh, It goes way back in their history that this is a Jewish movement. These are Jewish people. And we find out that uh, at this point, 100% of the people that have come are Jews. And so they kind of keep pushing the limits uh, up against the current temple. And finally, the temple pushes back. They arrest Peter. Uh, they threaten him. He gets released. Uh, he goes right back to preaching and they arrest him a, another time. They throw him in actually the common jail this time. An angel sets him free and he goes right back to preaching again. This time they arrest him and beat him. Um, and then uh, they have to hire some help. And one of those helpers, Stephen, is stoned to death uh, because he is doing good and preaching the gospel and and doing signs and wonders and things for God in the land. And this upsets the people, and so they kill him. And because of that, the church has to scatter. They have to kind of spread all over, um, running from the persecution. But as they do that, they run preaching the whole way. So as they're running from this persecution, they're talking to new people, and they're preaching the gospel. We learned last week that uh, in one city that Philip went to, this brought great joy to the city, Um, which brings us to today, because this is the city that Philip goes to. It's a city in Samaria. And he goes and he preaches the gospel, and they're receiving it, and there's this man named Stephen, or not Stephen, Simon, who who had kind of been a big deal there. Simon, somehow, the Bible doesn't tell us anything he does. He just said he had gained a lot of fame through his sorcery. And so we don't really know what that is, but he had been doing something, some form of magic um, that was, had gained him a reputation. And when he comes, something in, the, in Philip's message was compelling enough that Simon also believed. And so Simon believes and, and, and follows and gets baptized along with a bunch of other people. And, then, uh, and that kind of brings us to today's story. And in order to get there, um, we have to remember the original outline to the book, that this is not an accident. We talked about this a little bit last week, that Jesus said in the very beginning, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he is, this is part of his original plan, even though I don't think the apostles were completely ready for it, which we're going to talk about. Um, so let's talk about Samaria. We hear about this a lot because Jesus told this famous story about the Good Samaritan, right? And we all know about the Good Samaritan. In order to understand the real punch of the Good Samaritan, what made that story so powerful, you have to know who the Samaritans were because the power in that story is that Jesus picked the bad guy, 
to play the good guy. And everyone hated the Samaritans. And we, you know, we often talk about why they were hated, but, um, you know me, I'm going to go into way more detail than we need to to explain um, why they hated the Samaritans. So, nerd step number one, get a map. <clears throat> this is a map of the area at Jesus' time. <laughs> How cool is this? So this is Samaria here, right? So this is Judea and Jerusalem down here. This is kind of the hot spot. This is the temple. This is where everything is. Galilee is up here. So Nazareth, where Jesus was born, you know, the Sea of Galilee, where people were walking on water, and just all that stuff we hear about happens up here. But Jerusalem is down here, and right smack dab in the middle is Samaria. So you could not get from one side or one end of Jerusalem to the other without passing through Samaria. So in order for the Jews, which half of them are up here, the other half are down here, to do anything together, you've got to travel through Samaria. And the roads through there were very dangerous, which is why the story of the Good Samaritan comes into play. So why are the Samaritans so bad? I have a map and a timeline. This is awesome. So, in the Old Testament, Gerizim, Mount Gerizim, which is uh, right around here, uh, becomes a big deal. Okay? This area is a huge deal. That is where uh, Abraham, when he first comes into the promised land, God says, look around. All this land I'm going to give you is going to be yours and your disciples. That happens in Shechem. Okay? We've got a... So Abraham passed through the land of Shechem, which is that spot I just pointed at, as far as the terebinth tree in Morah, and the Canaanites, uh, the Canaanites were then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. So Abraham builds his first altar in the promised land in Gerizim. I lost my map. Um, then we've got Jacob, so Abraham's grandson. And Jacob came safely to the land of Shechem. We're back in that same place, which is the land of Canaan. When he came from Padanatum, and he pitched his tent uh, before the city, and he brought, bought a parcel of land where he had pitched his tent uh, from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money, and he erected an altar there and called it Eli Elothe, Israel. So, uh, <coughs> um, Jacob had had to run from his brother. He goes to his uncle Laban's. He's there for years and years. He gets married four times, has kids, comes back, and on his way back, he finally kind of reconciles with his brother, and this is his first place he really settles at. He builds an altar there. So now we have two altars there. We have Abraham's altar. We have Jacob's altar. Um, Jacob also digs a well there, which becomes a big deal. Then we move on. Uh, now, um, okay, so this is... This is when they have uh, gone into Egypt. So Joseph basically takes them all into Egypt. They're there. They become slaves. They're released. And this is just before they go in. They've got kind of the, the curses that these are the things that are going to happen if you do not obey this law and the blessings. These are the things that are going to happen if you do obey this law. And God gives this funny command. He says, go to Mount Gerizim and put a monument with the blessings on it. And then go to Mount uh, Ebal and put a monument with the curses on it. And this little valley in between is Shechem in between these two mountains. And he says, uh, Now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, you shall put the blessings on Mount Gerizim and the curses on Mount Ebal. 
And Joshua, at the end of his life, he gives that big famous speech, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. He gathers everybody up at Mount Gerizim in Shechem. <clears throat> and then uh, they buried the bones of, uh, of uh, Joseph when, he, when they left. He kind of gave a command when he died. When you leave Egypt and God delivers you into the promised land, take my bones with you and bury them in the promised land, in the land that's supposed to be ours. Don't bury me in Egypt. So they bury his bones at Shechem on Mount Gerizim. So Shechem builds up this sacred nature. This is kind of a sacred space. And when they come in and they take over, um, there's the bones of Joseph. We talked about that. Um, they put the ark there. So the ark stays in Shechem. It kind of bounces around a couple of little towns there, but the ark is in Shechem. And it stays there for years and years and years through most of the, uh, the story of the judges. The ark is in Shechem. And then uh, at the end of the judges, Eli... Uh, they take the ark because they think if they take the ark, they'll be able to defeat the Philistines. So they take the ark kind of as a good luck charm, not as an, uh, an element of to worship God, but kind of as a good luck, surely we can't lose if we take our good luck charm with us. And they take the ark into battle and the Philistines capture it. And so they lose the ark. And the Philistines have it for about seven months and then um, it's doing bad things to them and they, they, uh, they release it back into Israel, into Kirith-Jerim and it just sits there um, for a long time. And then, uh, and then comes, um, oh, we got the ark captured. I forgot to move on to that. Um, and then comes David. And David, as most of us know, took over after Saul. He's not by normal blood lineage. He's not supposed to be king, but God had chosen him as king. He had chosen to end the lineage of Saul and put David in his house. So David's got a little bit of a shaky Beginning, because he's he kind of has no right other than this um, kind of blessing he got when he was a kid from Samuel. He kind of has no right to the throne other than the fact that God chose him when he was young to be on the throne. But now that you're old, it's kind of hard to tell people. When I was a kid, God did this thing for me, so I'm supposed to be king. But he had been a good military leader, so the people were kind of behind him. So to kind of solidify, this is kind of a political move, really. But to solidify his reign, he moves the ark into the city of David. And now that he kind of has the ark, he built the tabernacle in Jerusalem. There's really no command to do this in the scripture. It's just David said he wanted in his heart to move the ark to the city of David. And so he puts the ark down here in Jerusalem, all the way down here, which geographically made some people grumpy because you remember three times a year they have to they have to come down to the ark to do festivals. And so the people that lived up here were really grumpy that it's all the way down here. And really this felt to everybody like a pretty central location right here where, for the ark to be. And so there was a lot of conflict about why David moved the ark into Jerusalem. Okay, And this is kind of the beginning of the tension between what becomes the Samaritans and the, uh, and the Jews. So then comes Solomon, and he builds the actual temple, gives it a permanent home. Uh, it's no longer in a tent. It's now in a structure. But when he dies, um, <clears throat> Rehoboam was his son, was supposed to be the king. And Jeroboam takes uh, the people from the ten tribes, so Samaria and Galilee, everything up here, come down. And, and what's funny is Rehoboam went to Shechem to get uh, coronated. He didn't go to Jerusalem which is interesting. He was trying to kind of win over everybody. So he goes to the middle of the kingdom to Shechem to win everybody over. And um, they tell him, 
your dad was hard on us. He worked us really hard. If you lighten our load, um, we'll serve you. And so he asked the old people, his old uh, advisors, the older men, the men that were older than him, and said, what do you think I should do? And they said, lighten the load. You'll have a, you'll have a kingdom that loves you. And so he asked his buddies, the kids his age, says, uh, what are you guys thinking to do? And he goes, I think you double the load. He goes, nobody comes to the king and says, lighten our load. You don't do that. Double it. And so he goes out and makes this big, you know, my father's, you know, his load was like my wrist. Mine's going to be like my waist. And, you know, I'm going to. And so he tells them he's, he's going to make him work even harder. And they just leave. And they quit serving him. And he had to run for his life back to Jerusalem. And the kingdom's officially split. So this is now what we call Israel. If you're reading through First and Kings, First and Chronicles, that's called Israel. This northern part up here, basically from Jericho, which is right here north, is all Israel. And this part down here they call uh, Judah. It includes the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, but they just call it Judah. So now we have two things, and the names keep changing, which makes it confusing. But now Israel is the top ten, Judah is the bottom two. And they go to war. Uh, they have different kings. They, have, uh, they fight with each other. There's times when the king of Israel attacks the king of Judah, and back and forth they have small skirmishes, big battles, a couple all-out wars. But, um, but when it does happen, the, the scripture records that they've been at, uh, in rebellion to this day. So whenever that book is written, they were still not together. I think I have it right there. Yeah, so they go to war against each other. And then... Um, where we at? Okay, so Assyria conquers the northern kingdoms. And this, this does not make the northern kingdoms happy because Judah does not come to defend them. They don't come to help. Um, they don't come to fight for them. They just let them get taken. And the Assyrians were kind of sneaky when they conquered people because they didn't just, they didn't do it like the Romans where they conquered a land and then they just took taxes from it to kind of like use it as a colony to, to draw resources from. They would take the best and the brightest out of the land and then they would move a bunch of their people in to just breed with them to just kind of marry and mix in and so a few generations down the road you know where I have an enemy you have family so now you just you've basically gotten rid of that bloodline that hates you and so this offended the Jews because they you know they were kind of pure bloods and so they didn't like the fact that the Assyrians um, were marrying the Israelites up there and then comes King Josiah and this is where it gets really deep because King Josiah he's, he's the king of the southern kingdoms and he leads a revival he gets into the temple and he cleans out the temple and he goes on a rampage up into Israel up into the north which isn't his land and he knocks down altars and he, uh, and he, anything of any pagan worship he destroys and he starts trying to raise money and he kind of has this thing where he's like if you come down and help us rebuild the temple We'll consider you cleansed and full Jews again. Like all everything's forgiven, and you will be, you know, part of us again. And some did. Some came down, and they. Uh, but most um, thought he was just trying to plunder their land and take their money. So this is where the northern tribes really kind of get offended. Like, who are you to tell us, you know, that we're, you know, not the purebloods? And then in 600, uh, the Babylonians conquer the southern kingdoms. And so they are conquered, and, and while they're pulled out, most of the northern kingdom just kind of comes down and takes over. And so really, they're kind of in charge. When we get into Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a lot of northerners living in, in the south. And so the, uh, when Ezra comes out, uh, the people that they're having problems with, if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they were constantly being badgered by the surrounding people. Those were the Samaritans. They're not called Samaritans yet. But those are the Samaritans. And they actually had a high priest in Jerusalem who was a Samaritan. 
And, uh, and in Nehemiah, his name was... Uh, uh, it's not coming to me. Um, but he... Uh, they kick him out. They, they boot him back to... Uh, Ezra boots him back to um, Samaria and they set up their own thing and they, they kind of do a pure blood thing when they come back out of Babylon. They were kind of like, we went into captivity and came out still Jews and we're just going to hang on to just us. Like, and so they boot everybody else out. That, of course, really offends the Samaritans. So they go home and build their own temple. So they build a temple and, it's, and they consider it a Jewish temple. They, they adhere to the, to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That's what they study. Um, they just don't believe in David because they're still ticked off that David took the ark out of Shechem. So they're, they don't believe in, so they're not looking for a Messiah, someone from the line of David. They're looking for someone they call the restorer. And he's the one who Moses said, they'll come a prophet like unto me and him you'll listen to. That's who the Samaritans are looking for because they believe in the Torah, just not the rest of the Tanakh. So they go back and build their own temple up here in Shechem where they believed it was originally supposed to be built. And if you remember when Jesus talked to the woman at the well, um, she said, well, we know what we're supposed to worship. We're supposed to worship where Jacob's well is, which is Shechem. Um, so she's like, we know the holy mountain. We don't know why you guys worship down in Jerusalem. And then in the Hasmonean dynasty, so this is the Maccabees. We talked about this a couple months ago. Um, where the Maccabees throw off Antiochus Epiphanes and they ruled Israel. Israel kind of self-ruled for a pretty big chunk of time there between the two testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, the Hasmoneans went on a, on a campaign up into Israel. Now, this is only about 129, so this isn't that long before Jesus gets here. And they go on a big campaign up into Israel to spread Judaism violently, basically. So they're going to conquer and spread and they destroy the temple at Shechem. So they completely wipe out the temple at Shechem um, on their kind of path of destruction and they evangelize Galilee. Galilee at that point was not Jewish. It was Samaria, Samaritan. And so this, is only the, this isn't that long before Jesus and these guys were still Samaritans, but the Hasmoneans actually managed to um, turn Galilee back to Judaism. So they become Jews again and start worshiping but they can't convince the Samaritans to do so. And this is what creates that kind of belt in the middle, which is where all of our conflict comes from. And then uh, um, when the... When the uh, I don't even know where I'm at here. I think I'm behind. I'm just clicking. Um, so then when Rome conquers uh, Israel, when they conquer Jerusalem, the Samaritans come down and help. They help Rome conquer Jerusalem. So if there wasn't already bad blood, obviously there is now. Um, and to add insult to injury, um, the Samaritans in 9 AD, so Jesus is nine years old, there's a big uh, uh, Passover festival in Jerusalem and they sneak in, they send spies in and they scatter human bones all over the temple to desecrate the temple during Passover. So this is now it's just getting down to basically calling each other names. Um, and then uh, raids are common. There's actually uh, a couple of Roman emperors, if you read their history, they were actually put on trial for encouraging the raids that were happening in Samaria and stuff. Um, several of them uh, kind of fed on and made money off of this conflict. And so it was super common. So this is a well-known thing that if you walk this road from Galilee to Jerusalem, you were likely to get attacked, which is what kind of informs the Good Samaritan story. 
And then in Luke 9, Jesus has his trip to Samaria. And this is kind of a big deal. We call this the travel narrative. Um, in, in, in Luke 9, um, Jesus says he set his face. They were up, they were up here. Um, they had just had the Mount of Transfiguration, which they think was probably clear up here in the very north. Um, and it says, And Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem and went into the villages of Samaria. And in 19.1, in chapter 19.1, so in 952, Luke 9.52, he leaves um, Galilee for Jerusalem and he shows up in Jericho, which is kind of the northern city of Jerusalem. Jericho is right here. When you've hit Jericho, you're, there's a border crossing. You're now officially in Judea from Samaria. And uh, he shows up in in Jericho in chapter 19, verse 1. So we know that whole in-between chunk is in Samaria. Everything from 952 to 191 is in Samaria. And what's ironic, and we're not going to go into this tonight, but it's, it's a good study if you want to have one, is that means everything Jesus teaches from 952 to 191, he taught to a Samaritan crowd. And there's ten parables there that aren't taught anywhere else. Nobody else records the travel narrative. Luke's the only one who records it. And he records ten parables nobody else writes down. It's not in any of the other Gospels. And these are the ones we usually hear the, apost- the, the disciples going, what does this mean? We don't even know what you're talking about. And Jesus gives them, it's given to you to know what I'm talking about, but to them I must speak in parables. And so this is a really neat look at how you would talk to somebody who doesn't speak Christianese. Like if you want to know how you talk to somebody who doesn't speak the language, who doesn't know how to speak church, Luke 9.52 to 19.1 is how Jesus does it. He, he goes into people who don't know the lingo and he tells them stories and stories that have a punch to them. And he kind of, he kind of sneaks the gospel in um, through these, the storytelling. And if you want to know what it was like when the disciples, um, this is a great one, um, when they went into Jerusalem. So here's what happens. Uh, this is Passover. We know when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, it's Holy Week. Because when he comes into Jerusalem, it's, it's, uh, it's um, the triumphant entry. So it's Palm Sunday. So we know that there's, this, is a, this is a pilgrimage festival. So there would have been a flood of people coming from Galilee to Jerusalem. Because Judah, or they had to go down there to worship. So this would have been a big thing. And this would have always upset the Samaritans. Because they believed that the Passover should be celebrated in Shechem. And so that means a lot when you read this verse here. It says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers, messengers before him, or before his face. So the messengers would go up and they'd go into the next town. You couldn't call to make reservations. So you sent a messenger and he would go into the next town and find you a room. And then when you got there, it would be waiting for you. It's basically the equivalent of making reservations. So they sent somebody before him to get a room ready when he gets there. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So the Samaritans won't give him a room because he's not going to Shechem. They're, they won't give him a room because he's on his way to Jerusalem. And they don't like the fact that the Jews worship in Jerusalem. So Jesus doesn't get a room when he goes into this Samaritan city. And what's fun is the way the disciples respond. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elijah did? So, so they do not like the Samaritans. Like, they won't give Jesus a room, and their go-to is, should we nuke them? Like, you think we ought to just destroy them, wipe them off the earth? Yeah, for a room. So that's kind of that's the attitude. Now, here's what we have to remember. Uh, it takes a few weeks to get from Galilee to Jerusalem 
He gets here on Holy Week, so it's only like a week before he dies. And then we know it's 40 days later to the book of Acts. And then where we are in Acts is, you know, is a few months um, later. So this is within the calendar year of our story right now. So eight and nine months before Philip goes into Samaria, the disciples go to was, do you want us to call fire from heaven to destroy him? So this is fresh. This isn't, you know, this isn't an old, you know, rivalry. This is within the same year. They're now having to contend with the reality that these people are getting saved. And that's where our issue comes in today. That brings us where we are. So in Acts 8, Philip goes into Samaria. The reason this is important is because of Peter and John's uh, kind of behavior in this passage. If you don't know kind of how deep this riff is, if you don't know kind of who the Samaritans are to these guys, um, you can tend to miss uh, what Peter and, and John are doing here, and you can, you can kind of miss how monumental of a shift this is. So um, another thing that's important is Philip is a Greek name. It's not, a, it's not a, an Aramaic name. It's not a Hebrew name. It's a Greek name. And if you remember why the deacons were, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, why the deacons were chosen, it's because there was a conflict between the Jewish widows and the Hellenistic widows. The Hellenistic widows are widows who, whose family was most likely Jewish, but lived in, uh, up in the rest of the Roman Empire. They didn't live in Israel. Probably spoke a different language. And so when the apostles chose the deacons, they chose them from amongst them. They actually told the people, you choose from amongst you people who can serve you. So chances are Philip is not a Jerusalem Jew. He has a Greek name and he was chosen to support the Greek widows. So most likely he's a Jew who grew up somewhere else in the kingdom, not in Jerusalem. So it could be that Philip didn't have an issue with Samaritans. If Philip wasn't raised in Judea, if he was raised somewhere up, you know, say in Greece or, uh, or anywhere else in the Mediterranean, he wouldn't have had the just kind of born-in racism toward the Samaritans. And so when, it, when everybody fled, it makes sense that Philip was the one that goes north. He's the one that goes into Samaria because he doesn't have a problem with these guys. And he preaches the gospel up there. And word gets back to Jerusalem. Can we get there? Yeah, so that's when he got up there. That was actually our passage from last week. Um, so word gets back to Jerusalem that these people have gotten saved. And this is like hearing that that one group that you just don't trust are suddenly now in the family. And you're like, really? So here's what they do. Now when the apostles who were in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them who when they came, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as of yet, he had fallen on none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So here's what I think is happening. I think they're there to validate. I think when the Holy Spirit fell on the Jewish church, it came with, a, it came with the Holy Spirit in a way that was tangible and measurable. And I think they went up to see if this was real. And what's funny is we only hear the... This, this kind of validation happened two times other than Acts 2. It's really three times in the book of Acts. 
One was when the, when the Holy Spirit kind of fell on the Jewish church in the upper room, Acts 2, which we know about. Here it happens again when the gospel suddenly shifts into Samaria. So this is the first Samaritans, the first sort of non-Jews. They're sort of Jewish, but not really. Now the Samaritans do. The next time we're going to hear about it is in Acts 11 when the very first Gentile gets saved. When the first Gentile gets saved, word gets back to Jerusalem again, and they actually yell at Peter this time. They're like, what are you doing talking to Gentiles? And Peter goes, what am I supposed to do? I, I talked about Jesus and the Holy Spirit fell on him the same way he did us. And so this, whatever's happening with the Holy Spirit here, it has happened when it happened to the Jews. It's now happened to kind of validate the move into Samaria. And then it happens again to validate the move into what we would call the ends of the earth. Remember our outline, the gospel is going to go Jerusalem, which is in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the Holy Spirit is there at the, at the beginning of each move to kind of fall again and make an impact. And, and the language, I think, is, is important here. Because it, it, it says now when the apostles... I'm going to get... Better put that down. That you can follow on your own. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. He doesn't say that a Samaritan had received the word of God. They don't say a person. He said Samaria. To them, this is, this is beyond someone receiving the word of God. This is a land that the, the word of God is now open to Samaria. And that brings up this issue. Because this is one of the passages that we wrestle with about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is, these are the verses we actually just talked about. I'm having trouble keeping up with my own slides today. So when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts 2.4. Um, and then here it says, then, uh, and then okay, then Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and people of the elders of Israel... That's when he preached his message. Before he did it, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So this concept of the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, there's a couple more that happened to Paul. Same basic idea. Um, A lot of people wrestle with whether or not this is a second event what we call a second grace. That we get saved is kind of our first event, that we get filled with the Holy Spirit is kind of a second event activity. That, and, and this passage tonight, when it says that they, uh, that they had only been baptized, and when we read it, it says they believed in Philip's message, they were baptized, and then uh, Peter and John came down and says, have they received the Holy Spirit? Cause, and they said, no, they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. And it kind of creates this distinction. And so a lot of people in the church think that those are two distinct activities in the life of a believer. We get saved and baptized and then we're, we're filled with the Spirit separately. Has anybody heard this theology and been a part of this theology at times? Right. And part of this is important is the, is the Greek here. Um, and I grabbed this one passage from Matthew. It doesn't really mean anything other than it's the Greek word uh, plero, which is full. It means to be full. So, um, so that would be the word. If, you, if we were to say, and Peter, full of the Holy Ghost, spoke, as though, you know, once you're filled, let's say, you would then shift Greek words, as though, okay, I've been filled with the Spirit, 
Now when I speak, it would say Peter full of the Holy Ghost said because he's already been filled, right? Except every time it uses it, it uses palempi, um, which means to be filled. So here's what I think about the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Do I believe the infilling of the Holy Spirit is a second event activity? Yes, I do. And a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth. I think the Holy Spirit fills us to do his work. And I think we're leaky vessels. And, and when he wants us to do something, he fills us to do ministry. And sometimes that infilling comes explosively. And I think the worst thing that can happen if you adhere to a theology of the infilling of the Holy Spirit is to, is to feel the infilling of the Holy Spirit and think you're done. Ask for it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And sometimes... You know, because I think that's what's happening here with, with, with Peter. He's on trial. They bombard him, and it says Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke. I think that's what's supposed to happen. And it's always supposed to happen. It's not, a, it's not like, a, like a second grace in terms of this thing that you, you know, this big event that's supposed to happen in your life. It's supposed to happen in the life of a Christian all the time. That's how we do ministry. We pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us up to do his work, to preach his word, to talk to people, to love on people. And that's what, and, and there's something, and I will say this, there's something recognizable in it because Peter, Peter not only like, wants to see it, like he wants to see that these people have been filled with the Holy Spirit, but it's something Simon can recognize because Simon's like, whoa, give me that power so that I can lay hands on people and they'll receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit should make an impact. There should be something different, something that changes. The Bible keeps talking about signs and wonders that follow. Like when the Holy Spirit, and here, like in the theology nowadays, generally when there's a second event in front of the Holy Spirit, it comes with the speaking in tongues. That We don't get that anywhere else. Like it doesn't happen here. We're just told that the Holy Spirit comes. They don't tell us what, what the... The evidence is it could be anything here. There's nothing that indicates it's, it's speaking in tongues. The speaking in tongues that happens in Acts 2 is, a, is some form of translation because the whole crowd is hearing their own language being spoken. And that, there's no need for that here because they all speak the same language. So I think the evidence was probably something different. But there's evidence. And I think when the Holy Spirit shows up, there's evidence. And I don't think we can put our finger on what that is. I'll, I'll tell you, in my life, it was the Scripture. It was a different book the day after I opened it. I, I, I don't know how to put it. The day after I would say the, the, the Holy Spirit's presence was, was noticeable in my life, I went to the Scripture and it was a whole different book. It was, I was, and I had read, I'd read it before and it, it just it came alive and it was completely different and I was getting questions and things were happening. And to me... It wasn't a big explosive thing. Nobody would have said, whoa, that dude just got the Holy Spirit. But it was tangible. I knew something had changed. There was a difference, and I could feel it. And it was, it, I could feel it in the way the Scripture came to life for me. But this is not a doctrine that we divide over under any circumstances. If you, if you believe that the Holy Spirit comes as a second event thing, and you want me to pray for you, I'll lay my hands on you and pray for you to receive that. I have no problem with that. This is not a, a theology we divide over. And if, and, if you, and if the Holy Spirit just scares you to death and, and you don't want anything to do with it because you've seen some bad stuff, I get that too. 
And I'm not going to lay hands on you and try to force anything that makes you uncomfortable in that area. This is not a divisive situation. But there's something recognizable here that Simon wants. And we hear in the story that Simon, you know, he's got some popularity. He believes and gets baptized. And then when he sees Peter and John praying for people to receive the Holy Spirit and it happening, he wants it and he offers them money. He says, he, he says give, us, give me this power to do this thing. And Peter kind of goes off on him, right? He kind of says, I think he says, curse you and your money or something. Um, yeah, and so... Um, and here's what's weird. People were giving the, the apostles um, money all the time. Like they were selling things and just laying money at their feet. Like the, the money thing's not the problem because people were always giving the apostles money and, and, you know, and the apostles were praying for people constantly. And what Simon's asking for is not even really that evil. He's saying, give me the power so that when I lay my hands on people, they'll receive the Holy Spirit. Like, who wouldn't want that power? Like, honestly, I wish I had that power. I wish I could just tell you, if you come down here and I put my hands on you, and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. That would be awesome. Um, and so the problem's not in the money thing, because people gave the disciples, the apostles money. It's not in really what he's asking for. I think uh, Peter sees through to his heart motive. And this is our tension. Um, point for the week. And this is a big one. Freedom versus formula. Money's the biggest one on this. And I wrestle with the money one all the time. Because we know God tends to give to givers. Like when people give, like God seems to give them more to give with. And I, I know a lot of people like this. Because they're just giving people, God seems to give them more. But the second you try to make a formula out of that, you trump the whole system. The second you're like, I'll give, so God gives to me. It breaks down and it doesn't work that way. And it's like that all the time. I mean, worship's another one. There's times when we've done a, a worship song and it's just awesome. And it's like you can just feel God's presence just come into the room and you get the goosebumps and ooh. And so the next time you're like, let's do that one song that brings God. Like, and you suddenly, you know, you, you attach it to the song not what God was wanting to do that night. So you try to make a formula out of it and then you play the song again and it's just completely dead. And you're like, what happened? That song was awesome last time. We love formulas. And what's, what's bad is formulas are a sign of a desire to control. Like underneath every formula is I want to be able to control this thing. I want it to happen on my terms. And that's what Simon's asking for. It's not that wanting to lay hands on people and have them receive the Holy Spirit is bad. What he's ultimately asking for is the ability to control it. Give me the formula. I want to know that it's going to happen when I want it to happen, as I want it to happen. Like, and that's what Simon's really after. And this is one we've got to watch out for. Because a lot of the things we do look like formulas. I mean, sowing and reaping sure looks like a formula. If you sow good things, you're going to reap good things. That sure looks like a math problem. Two plus two equals four every time. Sowing good should equal you reaping good. And then the second we think we can take that little principle and use it to control God, I think God just kind of chuckles and just laughs at that because we can't control God. And believe it or not, I think all this is going to come together. 
How do we respond to this passage? It seems to me what's going on here is, is the same thing on both sides. I think Peter and John do it right, but I think ultimately the reason they go up into Samaria is because they didn't think God was going to go up there. That's what I think. I don't think they thought God was going to move amongst the Samaritans. I think there was a major doubt. I think they thought they knew what the Holy Spirit was up to. They thought they knew what he wanted to do. And when he went up into Samaria, they were taken by surprise. And luckily they didn't fight it. They just went up to validate it. They went up and the Holy Spirit came down. They were like, holy smokes, God's in Samaria. Who would have thunk it? Like, who would have thought God would come up here amongst these barbarians? Like, and they're shocked. Because they thought they knew what God was going to do. They thought they had it pinpointed. They thought they knew the formula. They thought they knew how it worked. I think they thought they were going to replace the temple, that Jerusalem was going to be what it was prophesied to be so many times in the Old Testament, kind of the center of the world where people came to receive, kind of what we see as the new Jerusalem in Revelation. Like They thought they were going to be at the heart of this thing that happens in Jerusalem. And I think they, they just knew what God was going to do. And the Holy Spirit surprised them by going amongst those people. Yeah. Those Samaritans. And I think Simon actually does the same thing. He wants to control God. So our main point is we've got to let God be God. And this always sounds good. We love this. But it's hard. That means we've got to understand that God might be moving in those people that we don't think he's moving in or that we don't think he should be moving in. Like those people that, that crawl under our skin a little bit. We have to understand that God might be doing something amongst them. We might, it might mean that God's asking us to do uncomfortable things. Like be authentic with people. Let down our guard. Be real. And maybe that scares us because the real us we don't like very much. And so we... And so we say, let God be God. And then God says, okay, tell him who you are. And you're like, except for in that area. <clears throat> it might mean you've got to cut yourself a little slack. Maybe you've lived under this standard for a long time and you're like, I've got to be this if I'm going to be successful. I've got to live like this and I've got to act like this, blah, blah. And the Holy Spirit's saying, I just love you the way you are. Stop putting the standards so high I just want you to be you and I just love who you are and you just plug your ears and say that can't be God I'm just because God wants me to be this and ah it means we have to let go of some control it means we can't decide how it's going to happen it might mean God does something that that you've always thought was not God and now all of a sudden he's doing it it might mean you speak in tongues. <gasps> Half of you just went, I'm leaving. <sighs> Who knows what it is? And it might be you not speaking in tongues. Maybe you, you thought that was something for you forever and God's like, I don't need that right now. Thanks. Who knows? But the second you try to script it, I guarantee you've got it wrong. 
For Jesus, it went like this. He said, Oh God, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, please let it pass from me. If there's any way I can get out of this thing, if there's any way that we can do this another way, I want to go that way. I want to go that other way. And then he said, but not my will, yours be done. And that's, that's the main point. If God wants to go into Samaria, we've got to let him go into Samaria. And we've got to go love some Samaritans. And if God wants us to, you know, if God wants us to let him decide who gets filled with the Holy Spirit and who doesn't, that means we've got to let him decide. We don't get to, just, we don't get to choose. God never gives us a map of where we're going. He just says, get in the car. I'm going for a ride.